Cool. So today we've got Tony DeVera on the Have You Heard podcast today. Tony, thank you very much for joining Ryan and I. And uh, so you're from the Rodale Institute doing a lot of research uh, around organic practices and uh, regenerative farming and all of these things. So would you mind just letting us know a little bit about Rodale and kind of what you do there? Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate this opportunity. So the Rodale Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh, we were established 75 years ago. Uh, the Institute just celebrated its 75th anniversary uh, in the past couple of weeks. Uh, it's been really exciting and it's also been experiencing some some really rapid growth recently, which kind of dovetails with the, the general recognition of organic farming and the role that regenerative organic farming has to play in addressing the, the resource challenges and, uh, you know, atmospheric challenges related to the climate crisis. I'm sure it's an interesting thing for a lot of your listeners, um, something people, a lot of people in agriculture are considering, so all that's really fortunate. Uh, but at its core, the Rodale Institute was started to be a research organization to, to really look at the effects of organic farming and compare it with conventional farming and, and really get some concrete metrics around why organic farming is better for the environment, better for the farmer, and better for, for economics and stability than conventional farming. So one of the major things we have in Pennsylvania, where the Rodale Institute was originally founded in Pennsylvania, is we have the longest running side-by-side -side trial comparing, uh, you know, university recommended uh, standard conventional practices with herbicides and, and genetically modified seeds and stuff side-by-side -side with uh, organic farming systems. Uh, some of those organic systems are also no-till. Uh, Rodale recently has done a lot of work in the no-till organic space, developing uh, cropping systems for corn and soy that use uh, high, uh, cover crops and, and the roller crimper implement to terminate cover crops and produce a lot of, of uh, residue and litter on the ground to give you a, a thick leaf a mulch layer that really protects the soil and allows the soil to form its aggregates and, and you know, nurture microorganisms that have a host of benefits for, for soil fertility. Um, myself, I work at a satellite research station. So the Rodale Institute is originally from Pennsylvania, but it has six satellite research uh, uh, stations. The one I'm based at is here in Southern California. It's called the California Organic Center. And we manage five acres of research plots in Camarillo, California in Ventura County which is the next county Northwest uh, uh, from Los Angeles along the coast. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for that background. Yeah. I just seen some uh, just media stuff from Rodale about the 75 year anniversary. And it's uh, there was some stuff on Instagram of um, there was a book that J.I. Rodale wrote when he first founded the, the foundation and, and kind of what his intention was and, and this is in 1947. So like right after World War II, where all these crazy yeah. pesticides and all this stuff really started to like pick up a lot. Um, and he's basically saying like, hey, no one believes us that these things could potentially be dangerous. So we, now we need to prove it. And so, I mean, 75 years later, I guess like at a high level, when you, when you said the longest running um, comparison, basically, of what's going on in Pennsylvania with conventional and, and organic. It's about 40 no years old. It goes back to the 80s. Oh, wow. Okay. So like out of that, is there enough data where it's like, 
indisputable now where it's like, this is very clearly um, a better way to do things when we're comparing organic and no-till versus conventional? Yeah. And some of the most dramatic benefits are the least obvious and require more like economic analysis, especially around carbon budgets and stuff to tease out because everything that supports the conventional farming system are inputs that are basically derived from petroleum. So they inherently have a carbon footprint attached to them. And then also a pollution, like a non-carbon, a pollution related footprint. Cause you just imagine a lot of everything related to a petroleum economy. Cause like you talk about all the ammonia fertilizers and, and phosphate fertilizers, these are all, you know, one way or another derived from natural gas or, or other, uh, uh, fossil fuels like we dug up from the from the ground and the same is true for most of the the agrochemicals i mean agrochemicals are all basically petrochemicals you know the the insecticides fungicides uh herbicides etc so the the impacts of those compared to a system that doesn't use those and all the inputs are derived from uh like what you could say is recent sunshine maybe the the sunshine of just the past several years. So your your fertility inputs are primarily cover crops that you grew in previous years. These cover crops grew um, and they had a lot of legumes as part of it. And the legumes and the cover crop portion fixed a lot of nitrogen and and you know through their root action mined phosphorus from deeper in the in the soil profile or in the in the um, in the the root the profile of the the, the ground and render that into their leaves and then by you incorporating that into the soil or folding them down with a roller crimper and leaving them as a, a residue on the on the soil you you return those those nutrients to the active soil layer uh at the top you know the top soil the top six inches is the most active layer of the soil where you have all these microbes and arthropods and, and all kinds of life just breaking things down and uh, excreting them and decaying them and making those nutrients available. So all your, your nutrients, instead of coming from a pocket of sunshine that's like 2,000, 3,000 feet under the ground and you had to like do this huge drilling to pull it out with a oil well uh, or, or fracking or whatever, uh, it's, it just came from the previous year's uh, legumes. And that's, that's like at its core, probably the, the best thing you can compare about sustainability. Are we using energy that geology sequestered into the earth uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago, which is non-renewable, or are we using sunlight that hit the earth last year to, to, uh, to fuel, power, and feed what we're producing this year, which will feed us or feed our animals or, or make the fiber that clothes us? You know, make the hemp plants that <laughs> that that we transform into all the materials of the future. Yeah, no, I think it's a wonderful way to to look at it. I always tell people that uh, those other fuel sources are thousands of years of stored energy, and and the way you're talking about sustainability and and using stuff we just made last year is very interesting way to uh, to understand it and uh, create an energy in that that top topsoil uh so what what does rodale institute sounds like the right uh group to be further uh seeing how hemp can be combined into uh more dynamic and uh um forward-thinking farm models where is that uh where and when has that Venn diagram crossed over and what work are you 
uh, active in that the Rodale Institute's working on with hemp specifically? I started working with the Rodale Institute in January, uh, or you know, formally started working with the in Institute in, in January as a as an official employee. Uh, we had some overlap before that, where there were some grants that we collaborated on, and they were all related to hemp, because I myself have been working on hemp-related projects since 2016, in you know one one way or another, uh, and. I grew some of the first hemp in California in 2018. We did the first uh, fiber and grain variety trials in California in 2021. And uh, it's it's been a really interesting journey on the hemp side, kind of seeing the, the industry evolve and change, you know, going from the initial CBD stuff to now this 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 focused push towards industrial products, which I'm, I've always been most excited about and found most compelling so it's really cool to see that. And, and also like that feeds into the work you're doing, Ryan. So it's awesome. And that crop down there in Lemoore, that one was pretty notable, yes? Yeah, yeah, the, that was that was fiber trials from 2021, which was, uh, you know, we had some varieties from Europe, which, uh, you know, were, were not ideal for California, so they didn't perform. And that, that I, guess, I guess you could say that was the part of the trial where we looked at uh, uh, fiber and grain varieties uh, for comparison. And then there were the Chinese land race varieties, which uh, performed stellarly and uh, were, you know, they produced uh, 20 to 26 foot tall plants. There were yields uh, upwards of eight tons per acre of, of total dry biomass. Uh, there was one plot that got up to 10 tons. That was the plot that, that was allowed to go to flower and, and had, had seed heads on it that were harvested. Uh, so the, the crop is capable of producing quite a bit in, in California. It's very impressive. And it's also very impressive uh, compared to the amount of water, the relative water use. So, you know, they had a crop in the ground for 180 days that produced all of that biomass and, and all of the, uh, you know, the, the, the fiber that can be harvested from it as well as the herd. Because, you, you know, if you have hemp, you have herd. And... Um, and it, it used less water than a typical cotton crop would. And it was, it was a record-setting uh, cultivation, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was proposed to the Guinness Book of World Records as the tallest hemp plant. Um, I haven't followed up with it because I, I didn't. I wasn't the one like who really took point on on pushing that to the Guinness. But I don't think it's been contested. <laughs> but if if it is, I mean, it'd be great if someone grows a taller plant. It'd be awesome to just see like world's tallest hemp plant year after year, someone's always able to grow a taller one for the next, you know, 10 years. You know, then we end up with something that's like 35 feet tall or something. Right, then the, the balance just becomes finding out uh, how to harvest and make the use of those things. But if we can consistently grow 30 foot tall hemp stalks, I'm sure we would uh, yeah. manage a way to make the use of the biomass, but that is uh, phenomenal. I was able to go down and see those those hemp fields and walk underneath the, uh, the swaying branches and it was quite uh, it's, it's more like a hemp forest isn't it it is more like a hemp forest i mean it could be a yeah. tourism attraction just in and of itself um yeah you, you make like a, a little mazes the same way you'd make corn mazes i mean it's, it's i think it's more effective than a corn maze for sure way more effective way thicker yeah. and harder and and the the advantage like of like being able to grow really tall hemp plants also demonstrates that you're able to grow through time. So you can plant later and still have a really tall plant. Like you could, 
you can plant at the beginning of the season. And at the end of the season, you have like a 25 foot tall plant, or you could plant uh, like a 20, 25% of the way through the season you'll plant. And then instead at the end of the season, you'll have an 18 foot tall plant. You plant halfway through the season, you have a 12 foot tall plant and you plant in the last 75% of the season, like say we plant in July and you could still have an eight foot tall plant. And the, like the real upside of being able to grow a tall plant is it kind of demonstrates that you have more flexibility in when you can go back and, and plant. And you could, you could almost adopt more of like a relay type of planting and production system, which would, would improve the utilization of your processing equipment at the, at the end of the, the line, because instead of having a, a massive amount of harvest that comes at the end of the season that has to be stockpiled, has to be inventoried, and then has to be run through, you just have like relatively fresh material coming into a processing facility nonstop on and on. And, and, and then there's considerations on the front end of the crop planting cycle where you have more flexibility in what you can grow in rotation with the hemp if the hemp can still be planted later in the season and produce like a six to 12 or, or 15 foot tall crop that's economically viable. So if you can still plant in July, for example, and then in September uh, or, or like October have plants that are eight feet tall and have an economically viable crop to harvest, then that means that the, the crop that comes before the hemp uh, could be wheat. Like you could have a winter wheat that's growing throughout the spring and then ripens and you harvest it in the end of June and July. And then you just seed into that wheat stubble, your hemp and your fiber hemp grows. Um, so, so there's interesting things that, that it unlocks. And I think that's, that's the most interesting and underrated aspect to those uh, Chinese varieties. I, I sometimes call them subtropical varieties because they come from a lower latitudes. So they have different uh, reactions to the photo period than we're used to with like European varieties. Um, because with European varieties, there's only, the planting window is basically March through May. If you don't plant March through May, you're not gonna get something that's, that's viable for the most part. Uh, maybe you could do something and get something that's viable for grain production, but that's like a, a different animal, right? That is very interesting. So uh, as far as the the role that hemp is playing in uh, adding to farmers' versatility in their in their planting and stuff, is there any um, region or or specific crop rotations that uh, hemp yeah, pays so, particular advantage to? So you know, returning to the Rodale Institute and the the background of the Rodale Institute, the Rodale Institute has been working on hemp related research at its Pennsylvania. Uh, main campus since I believe 2017 or 18. So it's been several years. For the most part, they've they've mainly grown European varieties, and uh, the interest of Rodale in the in the uh, in hemp is looking for a third cash crop that could grow to a that has the potential to in the long term grow to the size that corn and soy have. Because as, as so many of your viewers know, there's, there's two main cash crops that really dominate U.S. agriculture, and it's, it's corn and soy. And the rotation for many farmers across our bread baskets, like, you know, the, the Midwest as a whole, like, 
you know, the Midwest could be broken down into a bunch of different subregions. But for the most part, if you go from Minnesota to Louisiana, that's like the Midwest. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm relatively uneducated about it as a Californian who's only ever lived in California. But my, <laughs> my sort of understanding of agriculture in the rest of the country is Midwest agriculture is massive and it, it makes the scaled farms we have here in California look like toy sized in particular. I mean, like a large farm in California is a couple thousand acres. That's like an average to small size farm in the, in the Midwest that's doing corn and soy. And many of those farms are just doing corn and soy. Some of them are just doing corn back to back to back to back. And then, you know, market conditions will push them to doing soy back to back to back to back. And that's like not environmentally sustainable. It's entirely propped up by like the, the, the mining sunlight energy system, like fossil fuel energy system we were just talking about, right? So that's why every, every organic systems plan for converting a, a farm to certified organic production has the farmer doing at least four crops in a, in, a, in a crop rotation. And the big question for Rodale as a, as a think tank and as a thought leader in organic agriculture has been, what are those two other crops besides corn and soy that farmers can grow uh, that will make that rotation balanced? And for the most part, uh, the third crop has been wheat in, in many regions, but it's not possible in all regions. Uh, as I've been been informed by people who know more than me, there are many regions in the Midwest where wheat's not really a crop, a viable crop because it's just too wet. <coughs> Excuse me. But, you know, just say at, at face value, wheat is the third crop, then uh, the, 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 um, the thing we work towards is that hemp can be that fourth crop and we can have a, a, a very stable, you know, four-wheeled crop rotation, organic and sustainable of corn, soy, wheat, hemp. <coughs> and and there's particular upsides to fiber hemp. Excuse me. Sorry about coughing. Yeah. Well, now, um, with all with all the research that Rodale's doing, like, is there some farmers who have, have looked at that research and been like, all right, we're going to do this on a larger scale? Like, are there, what's the current landscape as far as, as you know, and, and Ryan as well, like of how many farmers are actually using hemp right now as a rotation <laughs> crop um, in any capacity uh, for any well, of its feedback I've gotten crops. from our consulting team. The thing they've most been impressed with about hemp is how clean the field that's that comes in after hemp is because hemp is just so effective at suppressing weeds and keeping the weeds down for the season that it grows that the next season you plant into a crop, especially if it's, it was used to grow fiber hemp or a dual purpose variety, which grows very tall and, and has a long period of, of shading out the ground. You have a, a field that's very clean and needs a lot less interventions in terms of tillage or herbicides or whatever to clean it up. And so hemp, um, hemp growing hemp fiber can be like a reset on your field and even turn in fallow absolutely. land into yeah, that's yeah. And just an anecdotal story from like Kentucky. They used to have the diary entries from farmers and stuff who would say, you know, their, their most difficult land that stuff today, you would have to bush hog and things like that. They would just broadcast spread hemp and uh, it would choke out large areas and they'd grow hemp for two years or so on an area and then cut all that down and bring it down to grow another crop that was, you know, needed uh, easier conditions to grow in. So they called it like the frontier fiber because it would, you know, clear Absolutely. the frontier. 
as you grew yeah, fiber, which is just amazing. That's, that's an amazing use. And like, a I like to call it an eco synergistic use and the ecologically yeah. synergistic, right? You, cause we yeah. want to, we want to identify synergies in nature and lean into them and, and, and use them as wisely as possible in our, uh, in, in our, our systems and that like pretty much how we, how we engineer our, our world now as, as humans. And that's what humans are. Humans are engineers, we're ecosystem engineers. We need to lean as much as possible into the, the synergies that nature has exposed before us because nature, uh, nature evolution, however you want to call it has had, uh, uh, many millions, billions of years of crashing things together through accident and fate. And, you know, the synergies fall out and stick. And that's for sure one in terms of hemp being, being a way to, to clean up a, a weedy field. And, um, as a crop, like, you know, hemp is, is pretty comparable to corn in terms of being like really energy, uh, nutrient hungry and nutrient scavenging, but, uh, a key difference is that uh, while hemp is growing, it's it's actively uptaking and, and finding all the nutrients it can in a field. And it's got an aggressive taproot and roots that spread pretty pretty heavily and, and feed heavily. And it's and when you have hemp planted densely the way fiber hemp is, there's there's only one one to five growth points on each plant that are actively growing because the canopy space is closed up they're competing with each other. They're growing straight up like this. So it means that all that nutrient it's finding is going up through the, through the cambium, through the, uh, through the, the, uh, through the stem producing all this leaf material. And that's where all the nutrients are, all the nutrients, the phosphorus, nitrogen, potassium that was mining go into those leaves. And if the plant is primarily growing upwards, Every time it grows upwards, it, it has to make new sets of leaves. So leaves that had those nutrients in it lower on the plant naturally get shed. And underneath the canopy of a, of a hemp, of a hemp forest, like what we were talking about, like in Lemoore, you, you yeah. just see a whole lot of leaf drop. It's, it's just, it's like, that's another reason why it resembles a forest because the floor of a forest, it's also like a bed of leaves. Like you, you walk around under an oak tree it's oak leaves or, or pine needles if it's a pine tree. And that's what mm-hmm. it's like under a, a densely planted hemp, hemp fiber. So even though it's aggressively using and sucking up all the nutrients, and this is part of the reason why it's also really good at remediating things you don't want, like uh, like heavy metals, right? Right. Um, it, it just yeah. sucks, sucks things up. Um, it's, it's rapidly shedding some of those things through its, through its leaves. So... Which, which means that if you keep it in its vegetative growth state, which is producing the fiber component, then most of the nutrients that the plant uptaked and many of those nutrients, many of those nutrients will be things that were just in the soil and were available. But some of those nutrients will be things that many other cash crops would not be able to find because hemp is so aggressive in finding the nutrients. But That's most amazing. of it ends up back in the top soil, in the top uh, section as leaf mulch and, and will be available you know, it, to your next crop. And this is part of how yeah, like, hemp sort of prepares a field for your next crop and why historical records have shown that crops grown after hemp have higher yields. Like there's, there's studies out of, out of Spain 
where there's they find significant yield improvements in in wheat right. grown after hemp. Uh, yeah. So you know it, it becomes not just a way down to produce, San Luis. Yeah, it, it becomes not just a way to produce a carbon rich material for making into all kinds of advanced advanced manufacturing like the the herds right but also a way for farmers to manage their nutrients in their fields. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm always amazed by the ingenuity of, of plants that you think, you know, aren't so alive around you. They've thought very well about how to stay alive and how to promote their growth. And I appreciate your explanation and uh, wordsmithing there to, to get the ideas across. I think it is, I've always been so uh, enamored with deciduous trees that, you know, lay their mulch, their leaves down as mulch for the following season of hemp plant does that throughout its growth cycle which is is even uh more ingenious i think you know when it's in a crowded field like you're saying it drops its lower leaves as it's growing um which leads to less lateral branching leading to a better you know single stock fiber when you are growing for that method and then at the end of the cycle we as the cultivators will will chop it down and defoliate the plant and put all those leaves and it is hard to explain that to people you know the different methods of cultivation and how you work with those leaves will will lead mm -hmm. to you know how it actually gets left on the field but if it is mining nutrients from way down deep putting them in the leaves and then returning those leaves back to the soil it is like those hemp plants are preparing for its next generation which naturally if you leave hemp in a ditch or in a field like it has done since it's been growing in ditchweed for many of these places that it grows for a long time it'll continue to prepare the ground and then drop new seeds and cultivate itself and refine its genetics in some capacity to perform better in wherever it's at. But that is uh, truly fascinating. Is there any uh, crops in particular? Some of you were mentioning, I know I've, in Colorado, we've heard stories about it improving potato production down when they rotate it down in the, in the San Luis Valley. Is there uh, That's a very interesting one I hadn't thought about. Potatoes are, are a big crop here in California too. More specialty type potatoes and probably a lot of seed potatoes actually, I think about it. Uh, planting to planting potatoes there's a there's a really interesting kind of structure and regulatory body around how potatoes are multiplied and it's it's all like by generation you know because potatoes are are something where it's it's incredibly easy to spread disease with potatoes i mean you know like the irish potato famine and blight you know it's like that's why i'm here yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah as we know uh so so it's it's regulated so you can only you can only replant and reproduce potatoes a certain number of generations before you have to go back to certified clean stock that was made in the lab. Wow. And those multiplications are done, um, I believe mostly in fields here in California, because Ca California is, is a, a lot of, of, of production in California is around, you know, seed production, nursery stock, you know, propagative material for the farms that have tens of thousands of acres in, in like the Midwest wow. and other parts of the country. But that's really cool that uh, people are seeing hemp and potatoes in rotation. That's one I had not thought of, but it, it makes sense. You know, there's there's um, old old published documents like from uh, the 20th century where they are talking about uh, hemp being able to to alleviate problems with nematodes, uh, mm -hmm. and nematodes are a pretty big issue for potatoes. I know. Um, right. Yeah, combating diseases for, for plants that they grow in rotation with. Is that, you mentioned uh, California being like a kind of a producer nursery state for other states. Do you see them playing a similar role 
in hemp due to its its restrictions on large scale hemp cultivation in many of the regions in California? I think there's a there's a role, and it's a very interesting and specialized role, particularly when we talk about the subtropical type of hemp. And you know, to to sort of make an amendment to what I was just talking about with uh, fiber hemp, um, scavenging resources and, and basically cycling nutrients, that changes once the plant starts flowering. Because once the plant starts flowering, once the hemp plant starts flowering, all the nutrients it has uptaken and has been aggressively finding, um, it wants to put those somewhere now. It's the seeds. And as we know, hemp seeds are extremely nutritious, extremely nutrient dense, really high in protein. It's like 30% protein, 30% essential oil and fatty acids, right? Well, what is protein? Protein is nitrogen. That's the backbone of, of protein, amino acids, which have nitrogen in them. So once you go to the flowering stage, all these nutrients that the hemp plant was uptaking and was was physiologically cycling that we just discussed now has a place to go and concentrate into, and that's the flower head and eventually the seed pods. So from this reason, <clears throat> hemp that flowers and produces seeds, so what you could say is dual purpose hemp or just specialized hemp for grain production, is a, has a very different role in agronomy and in crop production from fiber hemp. Because now you're taught, you go from a nutrient hungry uh, crop that can scavenge nutrients and cycle nutrients to a nutrient hungry crop, which is gonna concentrate nutrients in the seed, which you're gonna harvest and remove and put into the supply chain because you know hemp seeds are very valuable. It's much more valuable to, to harvest it than to, to leave it out and leave it as bird mm -hmm. food. And it's, it's gonna right. go into like human food, especially in specialty human food products. Um, so that changes things fundamentally. And it's just very important to, to note. And then when we talk about the context of the subtropical varieties, these, these like uh, Chinese land race fiber varieties that can grow like 20 feet tall, or you can plant pretty late and still make really big plants. The reason they're able to do that is because of when they start flowering. So when we talk about the botany of the hemp plant. The hemp plant is what's called a short day plant. Short day plants are plants that respond to days getting shorter by going into their reproductive phase. So they have like distinct phases of growth. When the days are getting longer, they, they try to get as big as possible. It's just like grow, 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 grow. And when the days get, sh get shorter, the plant's reaction is winter is coming. It's time to make the next generation because my body's not gonna survive, survive winter, but the seeds will. So that's when they initiate flowering and start making seeds. So when you look at varieties that come from, come from Europe, were bred in Europe and maintained and honed in Europe for that, that region, the process of flowering and making seeds and setting seeds takes anywhere from 45 to, to 70 days depending on variety. It can be shorter or longer. 45 is probably like about the shortest to go initiate flowering, buds develop, pollen drops, pollination, and then seeds form and you have mature seeds. So if you have a, already a short, relatively short growing season because you're at a high latitude, like say in, in Poland or Central Europe or wherever, uh, and your growing season is only from May through end of August, September, then, and it takes 45 days to make that seed, then you, you have even, you, you have that much time minus 45 days to grow a tall plant that can make the fiber that you want, right? 
uh, when you go to the tropics or the subtropics, like, you know, Yunnan, Southern China, mm-hmm. or, or basically like Thailand, where, where these regions are. Right. And the, the, the growing conditions are good throughout the whole year. Like you, you, like the hemp plant can grow all the time, nonstop, but because it came from, uh, like, like hemp originally came from central Asia, uh, like basically where the Mongols are around that area. That's where the earliest like origin of it. So it's, it's like kind of coded into its nature to go into reproductive phase in reaction to the photo period changing. So when that mm-hmm. plant got to, southern china and started to localize and adapt to those regions it realized like oh i I don't need to start flowering until like the equinox until the days are 12 12 or you know about 12 12 and then really like i can kind of take my time flowering setting seed and and i can even make really large seeds if i wanted to because the growing conditions are going to be good all throughout september october November, December, even into January. And that's what we see with these Chinese varieties. They don't start flowering until September 21st. And like days need to go under 12 hours for them to properly flower. The flowering period takes longer. Flowering time takes longer. And the individual seeds are larger. And the seeds they make are are significantly larger. Like some of these seeds are, are almost the size of like a soybean. They're that big. Uh, and the, the, the time to make a seed takes like 70 to 80 days. So what that all leads to is you have a plant that won't flower until, until September and takes 70 days from September. So you won't have seeds until like December. There's not many regions in the continental U S where you can do that Mm -hmm. short of building a greenhouse or something. California is one of those regions, Southern Arizona, South Texas, maybe Florida, but in Florida, it's, it's like you have, you can have problems with like humidity. Um, but that to me sheds what the role for California could be. It'll be propagating planting seeds of these, you know, unique subtropical fiber varieties and making them available for the industry to scale up in the Midwest for fiber production. Well, that's awesome. We have a diverse, uh, a lot of times you have to go to, you know, different countries to find those, those conditions to propagate seeds in your specific climate and stuff. So luckily we have such a, a wide ranging landscape here. Hopefully we should be able to uh, kick things up a notch with, with hemp processing in America. And, and with that being kind of the lead into the next question uh, with everything the Rodale Institute's doing and, and the hemp industry as a whole, I know you're you're less, um, you know, involved directly in, in pushing the hemp industry forward as you were before. But what do you, uh, Tony, see as the biggest uh, hurdles right now? Like why farmers are, are not growing large scale hemp and what uh, what's being done or what could be done to to clear those hurdles and, and bring well, the scale of the industry up? The thing that like farmers don't turn hemp into money, processors do. So processing facilities are what take hemp in one end and turn it into materials that that can go into a supply chain on the other end. And when things get transferred, when when the materials change hands with someone that can turn it into into uh, an actual product with the supply chain, money is actually made and farming takes money. So, you know, the the main thing that will drive hemp happening, it 
it can't be farmers. I mean, as, as enthusiastic and, and into it as farmers could be about, you know, doing a new crop because there's, there's like interest and challenge in taking on something new. I mean, I'm sure there are many farmers who get bored with just doing corn and soy, like all the time, you know, like I've heard, I've heard stories of farmers in the, um, in the plains area who've, who've grown hemp for years. And it's, and it's purely just so that they have something that's a little bit different, like a little, a little project on the side that's, that's different from their day-to-day -day normative stuff. Right. But to take that interest and turn it into a real industry, it's going to be a processor, not that farmer. So a processor has to build a facility so that the farmer uh, has a place to take their hemp and turn it into something uh, that can be, that can make them some money. And if it can make them right. some money, then that combined with the on-farm benefits they're seeing in terms of their environmental sustainability and and their soil metrics getting better and reducing their their inputs because they have a cleaner crop the following year uh, will will be huge, and that that'll really push the thing forward. And then you know that's on the back end. On the front end, it's availability of seeds, which you you just mentioned about. Many seeds are only available as imports from other countries. Like that's not going to build a sustainable industry long term. Like we can't be reliant on on other countries for our 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 building blocks. Like we we need to create domestic seed production. But even domestic seed production is still downstream of processing. So it's kind of like the the processors who take the hemp and turn it into materials for the supply chain to make products for the consumers like they need to ripple their demand current all the way up the supply chain to affect the farmers and then to affect the seed suppliers who are upstream of the, of the farmers. And then even affect the breeders who are upstream of the seed producers. Right. Yeah. I feel like a lot of farmers are, um, you know, lacking that instruction on how to grow a proper fiber. I've talked to some of the consultants that help people transfer to regenerative farming through Rodale. And I think that's excellent to uh, give, give farmers better insight into how to prepare a viable fiber stock for sale. The only issue that comes up with processing as we all are aware of is shipping the material too far. You can't have someone growing Wisconsin and hoping to have it processed down in Missouri or the, the cost will be lost on the, or the, the margins will be lost yeah. on the shipment of it. So that'll uh, hopefully whenever there's a processor, no. that's always just the, the issue with processing or rely, having reliable amounts of material in a region. You want to have like a plan for having enough to make sure your processing facility is in a good place. But uh, once there is a processor in a region, hopefully it'll unlock more and more farmers yeah. in that 200 to 500 yeah. mile radius to work with hemp as well. One, one advantage that the Midwest has, and I mean, this is a little speculative that I'm, I'm speaking of here. Uh, so people in the Midwest can inform me if I'm ill-advised Ill here or, or whatever, but I've always thought that the biggest advantage that the Midwest has when it comes to hemp production, hemp processing, and being a hemp supplier, not just for the U.S., but for the entire world, is the Mississippi River because the Mississippi River and barge traffic is the cheapest way you can transport things, period, like at all. Like it's cheaper than trucks and rail is cheaper than trucks and barges are cheaper than, than rail. And then the only thing that's probably cheaper than barges is um, ocean going vessels. And that's just because it's economies of scale, they're so much bigger, but you can go directly from a barge to an ocean going vessel. Like it's kind of straightforward. 
So, Very much you know, so. there's, there's part of me that's always thought that's always, always thought that like once you're on the Mississippi shipping network with river barges, mm-hmm. a lot more things become possible because something like hemp stocks or, or say just like hemp herds or hemp or baled hemp fiber or whatever, which is yeah. uh, relatively shelf stable and uh, can be transported like long, long ways. And it doesn't care if it's on a barge floating around slowly for like a month or whatever. Uh, it can go anywhere on that river system. And, you know, all kinds of different uh, factories that turn things into widgets or uh, clothing or whatever can all be sited there and access herd fiber from anywhere upstream of it. And that's, a, that's like tens of millions of acres of farmland. And that's Certainly. the most exciting thing about reindustrialization of fiber hemp in the Midwest to me. Uh, and, yeah. you know, that there might even like even going up a step of, of just raw stocks, maybe that changes some math around raw stocks. It's probably doubtful still. But, you know, again, if it's cheap enough to just float things on a barge, then maybe it's possible to put put bailed stocks on a barge and float them down to someone who has a processing facility just downriver. Uh, but then the, yeah. the question is, how'd you get it from the farm onto the barge? Like that in of itself might be a cost that, that invalidates the whole theory. Well, no, you're right. I mean, when, when you're looking at a, um, uh, the bubble of uh, where you can grow and how efficient it is, usually that, that bubble is not really a circle. It's more of a lines that follow highways and, and things, you know, when people, uh, that, that shortens the distance greatly. Um, when you can get things places faster or cheaper, but yeah, no, the Mississippi should be the great highway of the Midwest, uh, connecting processors it, and, it and has farmers and, and manufacturers. Yeah, it definitely has been. It's, uh, it's America's been the, got a the engine of wealth for America for basically the duration of America's existence. No, I agree. We, we had a much more enamor, uh, enamored past with, with canals. They obviously tried setting up the, uh, great canals to go along the Potomac to the Great Lakes and connect the Erie and, and the whole mm-hmm. eastern coast. And I think Thomas Jefferson actually sent out uh, explorers to go find the central, the Great Lakes that would that would be part of our mapped out, you know, countrywide canal system. And when they found out the Rockies had little tiny lakes and no great river system, they uh, ditched, uh, you know, building a, a U.S. wide canal system. But uh, that is. Uh, Definitely, the Mississippi is is our great canal, and hopefully, uh, it will be re reignited as far as a manufacturing uh, vein for for farmers and man, man, processors and manufacturers to make to make materials from hemp. I think that's definitely uh, the hopes with many regions with hemp processing is to grow and then process and then turn it into something in the same same place. There's a lot of a lot of speculation that might have been what got hemp in trouble in the first place was uh, there were people doing just that in uh, unregulated parts of the country that weren't uh, formally colonized yet. Yeah, that's um, there's a lot of stuff in the in the historical record about hemp. It's pretty pretty interesting, you know. When when many things that can be made of from hemp can be made from petroleum or, or lumber, you know, gets you thinking about alternative alternative ways we could have developed our economy, but we're getting there now. We're, we're moving towards a, a more bio-based and, and uh, renewable economy now. Many, many things in the pike to, to move us along that direction. 
and I believe hemp will be uh, a big part of it. I agree. So tell me what, what, uh, what hemp material or product or something you're working on and you'd like to see worked on or um, something you think made, made from the materials that we're talking about that would be super helpful maybe to another industry or uh, an innovation you think will really propel the hemp space yeah. with something you're... Hemp, you're hemp building materials is what's always excited and inspired me the most. Uh, I, I don't have any experience in the construction trade, so it's entirely as a layperson, but when I, I, as a layperson, think about what could open up the most possibilities uh, for people and for humans just living on this planet, it's building uh, affordable, sustainable, fireproof, mold-proof, insect-resistant housing. And that's what, that's like the, the promise of a lot of hemp lime is. And that's what hemp lime, what makes hemp lime so compelling and some of the new sort of hybrid concepts of hemp lime and hemp spray insulation and different materials like that are are could be uh, so meaningful for our, our our next phase in development because we have a massive housing shortage here in California. California is massively underbuilt. My home state, you know, we have a huge homelessness problem and affordability problem uh, because of you know, everything from poor planning to bad, structurally bad incentives around property taxes that have, that have made people try to, you know, turn their, turn their houses into uh, asset bubbles and piggy banks that just balloon in terms of valuation and not want to allow people to build more housing so that they can, you know, have a place to live. But you combine that with the materials that we built with in the 20th century were basically cardboard and garbage and extremely flammable and we have like disasters like the the paradise fire where pretty much everyone who is near that fire is probably going to have uh some kind of cancer because all the chemicals that went up in the fire just like infected everyone's lungs but if all those homes were made out of hempcrete instead they would be fireproof they would still be standing and there wouldn't be like toxic fumes so that's uh yes that's the biggest thing for me that's really inspiring and I think is like almost infinitely sort of scalable because like I think across this country we need we need houses. And then if we don't need houses across this country, we need insulation because there's no shortage. There's like a bottomless well of things you could think of that would be improved by insulation. You know, your greenhouse. If your greenhouse, if if three of the four walls in your greenhouse were insulated, that greenhouse would be way better. <laughs> you know, and you don't have a greenhouse, you probably should because like right now, California does all the heavy lifting in terms of producing vegetables for the rest of this country. And it's absolutely not sustainable because California producing vegetables and putting them in the national supply chain to show up in grocery stores near where you are today in the Midwest, or I think you were just at a, at a Panera bread, Ryan. So like the salads that were on the salads that were that were on the menu there at that Panera bread were, were probably grown here in California or in Mexico. And the salad green is 97 percent to 99 percent water by volume. And we have a huge water shortage here in California. So even if you exclude all of the the effects on of, of just like the process of growing, the, the vegetable yeah. here and how much water that took. And you just think about the water embodied in the actual product that left our watershed to go to St. Louis. 
Uh, and, you know, many regions in the Midwest have relatively abundant water compared to us. So you have the water you need to, to grow these vegetables. It's just like our economic system hasn't been economical to do so. So a big part of the change is like people need to build greenhouses to grow these vegetables to keep the water in the in the watershed in the region that it's in so that people can have access to to healthy vegetables. And, you know, even Hemp Creek can be a part of it there because it's really cold there, you know. So what do you need when it's really cold? You need an insulated greenhouse. You need Hemp Creek, <laughs> Hemp Lime in the greenhouse walls. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So if we if we no longer, for whatever reason, need fireproof, highly insulated housing, we can start using hemp lime in greenhouses so that we can have right. local vegetable production. Well, I love it. I feel like supplying <laughs> and, and producing our own products it goes hand in hand with the self-sufficiency and our own uh, food supply. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's. Uh, fantastic to learn more about this and, and what the Rodale Institute's looking at and uh, really appreciate all the explanations on everything. Uh, Matt, do you have any, any other questions for, uh, for Tony? Well, he's no, us. no other questions. I think just a couple of comments on, on the last section there, like the climate emergency is such a, a big topic on the national scale all the time. And people always point to like temperature increasing and, and, things like that where, and there's obviously a lot of contention on that on both sides. And it, and it seems to me like it's the, the real climate emergency is, is with stuff like this, like uh, inefficiently allocating resources in California, just because it's working right now and um, supplying water. the rest of, rest of the country. Yeah. The water in terms of topsoil, like it, that's not really a part of the conversation. Um, on like a national scale, a lot of the time for people who aren't in it, like people who aren't in the farming community and, and care about regenerative farming. Like, I don't think people know that there's like a topsoil emergency. Uh, and that's yeah. arguably way more important um, and urgent, like need to be addressed than um, something like the average temperature changing over the past hundred years and things like that. So mm -hmm. I think it's important to kind of just isolate like what actually matters and what's, what's important here. And at the same time, where hemp steps in um, and can actually provide legitimate benefits there. And then the housing thing, it's like, it seems like that's a common thread. Like when, when we talk to people, um, it seems like building materials are what everyone is most optimistic on in terms of like mm -hmm. right now. And, and we can see it, we see it increasing with, uh, you know, hemp architecture and their facility getting built in Idaho and everything, all the different uh, like building contractors are doing stateside and it's all hemp fiber coming from overseas. Like these people don't want to be, they don't want to be importing their hemp fiber. They want to be growing it here. So it's like the, the chicken or the egg situation that we always talk about um, with, with the processing and the farming um, you would think you you'd think you would think that things are starting to kind of come along where there's reason for investment on the processing side thing, of things. Like there's demand there specifically on the, on the herd and, and fiber for insulation. Um, where it's like, doesn't seem like it's too far away where there's about to be in Ryan, you would obviously know a lot better with this, but like, doesn't seem like it's too far away that there's going to be a large influx in investment um, and just capital into processing. Cause that seems like that's really what's needed the most. Yeah. It kind of, if you're going to the well to get water, your, uh, your, your jug is, is your processing capacity. That's how much, that's how much water you can carry back to the village. 
and uh, yeah. people don't. If you're going there with just your hands, uh, <laughs> it's a yeah. great journey. You're going <laughs> to learn a lot. You're going to know which direction to get there next time, but uh, you're probably not going to get much back. But, yeah, no, it kind of sets the capacity for how much hemp needs to be grown and how much hemp can go into the market. And uh, I, I've been uh, accused of being a bit conspiratorial, but uh, I tell people all the time that's well, the people that don't want hemp to succeed. That's what they've targeted. They've made sure those machines don't exist. If everything else develops all around it, and there's no link there, it will, uh, won't exist. So hopefully, uh, like you said, Tony, we are, we are tinkers and engineers. The, uh, the word cotton gin actually used, it's a gin is short for engine, a cotton yep. engine. We do need, we need a hemp engine to drive this industry. I do agree working on it and, uh, hopefully, uh, it does become the reality, but it seems to be a, a kind of a resounding, uh, answer uh, that we need to see it's, it's been through the through the ages you know before in williamsburg they were using a, a you know ox or donkey driven roller crusher stone and then you know early colonial advancements led to a hemp brake and a steam-powered hemp brake and roller breakers but it kind of stopped there so yeah. uh definitely need to uh we're not the only ones working on it hopefully people all over the world are but it doesn't seem like it so hopefully uh <laughs> things pick up on that front <laughs> but uh well excellent tony it's always good it was great to see you out in california and uh really appreciate you coming on to uh explain more about your expertise and how how hemp is you know a great rotation a great agricultural and bio tool to invigorate land and and make the best use of it and hopefully uh these other things we discuss uh, continue to line up and put get put in place so we have a uh, ever-growing hemp space here and and then we can all go back to trying to make all these cool things out of hemp that we we hope exists in our future for sure it's been great being on thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure yeah right thanks, thanks tony. tony and we'll uh link some stuff in the description of the video because rodaleinstitute.org has a bunch of resources for not just like if you're a farmer like if you're at home and you want to have uh, a no-till garden in your backyard, grow your own vegetables. There's a lot of resources and um, or, or if you're just a consumer things. who wants to, you know, have some information about maybe making better choices about what you, what you purchase and, you know, what you can support with your dollar. Cause you're, every dollar is basically a vote. That's basically like how our political economy works. You know, we are so used to thinking like, Oh, like, we go to a ballot box and vote. It's like, no, you vote every day with what you buy with your money. Like, what? Yeah, we know what, that voting's a joke, Tony. Yeah, greenback you know, ballots you, around here, bud. We get it. <laughs> what, you, what you purchase says a lot about what, where your where where your intent is. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lack of education there, I think, in in some parts where people don't know that they're like perpetuating the big oil industry by, you know buying conventionally farmed vegetables and things like that so it's without going too woo woo about all of it uh there's there's connections to everything right, so it's like yeah. the the I, mean, I think the, the bigger thing is is uh bigger than being avoiding coming off as too woo woo is you, you don't want to be too preachy and too like like self-righteous about it too because that that's that's the number one way to turn people off because every everyone mm. knows someone who's like too self-right like the self-righteous hypocrite is like a very standard like character and and sort of like caricature we all have dealt with you know yep yeah so if uh if anyone listening is interested in kind of learning more about this stuff rodaleinstitute.org we'll link it uh in the description and you can 
spend a lot of time learning on different things there. And uh, yeah, Tony, thank you very much for coming on. Hopefully we do this again in the future and kind of just get an update on, on continued progress at Rodale. Awesome. Again, thanks for having me, guys. This is Ryan Doherty, Matthew Soares, and special guest Tony DeVrea signing, signing off from Have You Heard.